Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. I want you to know this morning, whether you realize it or not, there is a blueprint in heaven with your name on it. There's a map that God has drawn out of the places that He desires to go with you and in you and through you. There are lives that He desires for you to touch. There's the person that you're currently in the process of becoming. The life that He's called for you to live. He said it this way to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I want you to know this morning, because it can be so easy to forget that the story that God is creating in you is not like anyone else's. He's knitting a specific plot. See, there's a setting to your story. There's a time and a place. There's a fullness of time that God said it was time for you to be you on planet Earth. There are characters in your story, your parents, your siblings, your friends. You don't get to choose those. God writes them into your story. There's a DNA that he's knit within each of us. He made your personality. He gave a disposition of certain skills and certain gifts and a certain way of seeing the world coupled with a hunger and a passion that is pursuing you all the days of your life so that you would fully be who he created you to be. God continues to talk about us and he says this in Psalm 139, one of my favorite passages. It says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And all the days you ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You know, I find it fascinating because as I have been thinking and praying toward this message that I want to share with you to to talk about the story that God is crafting. These two scriptures, Jeremiah 1.5 and from Psalm 139, he gave me a long time ago, a long time before the events of this week, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and and in that time I've had people come and ask questions. How is the church to respond to something like that? And this is interesting. Even as I was out praying this morning and just seeking the Lord about how the church can be the church, the Lord shared something with me, and I felt like it was just timely to share with you. How do we respond to something like 
a federal law now saying that there's a new protection for the sanctity of life. And this is what I heard the Lord say. That from the church, celebration without incarnation only leads to greater separation. That celebration without incarnation only leads to greater separation. But then he continued, he said, incarnation without celebration only leads to greater frustration. So it's only celebration in the midst of incarnation that will lead to any lasting transformation. And this is what I mean. Celebration without incarnation. When we show up and we celebrate and we cheer, we go, yay, our team won. We got the vote we wanted. Yay, what we voted for, it's come true. But there's no lasting relationship with the world that is broken. That's not what it is to be the church. I've got to tell you, the last six years, my family and I, we've been on the front lines providing the welfare for children in our state as we've been foster parents. And I want to tell you, the foster care system, many people will say that it's broken, it's broken, it's broken. I love Josh and Courtney Lambert, our liaisons to a door of hope. They show up all the time. They say, stop saying the system is broken. The system is beautiful but overloaded. And by the way, it's not the state's responsibility. It's the church that's been called to be the hope of the world. So as one who's been on the front lines, I want to say this. I find a very solvable problem in the orphan crisis. I find a very solvable problem in everything that's happening. But there are people in the world today that hear the overturning of Roe versus Wade and automatically, no, no matter where they stand on when they believe life starts, they don't feel celebration because they see a world that's broken. And they see too many Christians that are proud of what they voted with their fingers and not what they're doing with their hands and their feet. So hear me, celebration without incarnation actually moving to the front lines only leads to greater separation of us versus them. Now that said, I'm preaching to the choir this morning. This is a church full of incarnation, full of saying, I, I live to receive and release the Father's love to everyone everywhere. I want to be the presence of Jesus. Anybody want to be the presence of Jesus on planet Earth today? Okay, so I got to tell you something. And by the way, this isn't just for Roe versus Wade. This is for your life. Listen, incarnation, making that choice without celebration will only lead you to greater frustration. You get to the place where something comes together on planet Earth and you go, yeah, that's it, but it's still so broken and we got to run, we got to run, we got to run. Listen, we start every staff meeting at Overflow Church with celebrations. You know why? Because problems have no problem finding us. I never have to make a time in the staff meeting to say, let's talk about what's not going well. We're going to find those, but we've got to celebrate. So I want to say this, Christians, to live in a nation, and I understand there are going to be opinions and thoughts about all of this, but to live in a nation which took another stance this week to say, we're going to believe that life begins at conception, and we believe that life needs to be protected at every level. That's a reason for celebration but it must be a celebration with incarnation. It's gotta be a celebration where we're gonna to step to the front lines and make sure that if we're saying we're fighting for the sanctity of life, listen, that we're not just pro-birth, but that we're actually pro-life. 
That means every man, every woman, every child, every socioeconomic type, every race, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every position that we say Jesus came for you and we're going to come down from our high opinions and come and meet you. So listen, as you go in the world right now, I promise you what we need is not more opinions. We need more relationship of carrying the incarnation of Jesus and that will lead to transformation. Now, I didn't even come to share that with you today. And by the way, the reason that is on my heart today is I have the joy of discipling two young men in our church, Ben Truslow and James Cornwell, and this actually came from our conversation. So if you're offended by what I've shared, please go talk to Ben and James. <laughs> no, actually, let me say this. If you're offended by what I said, please don't put a period on the end of the sentence and let's keep talking because that's the way we get greater glory. And that's going to be true for everything in the world. Let's stop canceling things and let's stop pushing away and let's have broader conversations because that's how the church will mature. All right? So God is writing this story in our lives. He's got a unique story that he wants to write for you, but as we know and as we don't have to look far to see, there's an intruder in the story. There's an enemy who hates God, and he hates you, and he hates everything God has created you to be. And so at every turn, this enemy comes to crash the storyline. He tries to get us to give up, or more than that, he tries to get us to hide, to mask our heart from God, from the world. He even gets so good at it, we mask our hearts from ourselves. So we spend our days chasing other things to kill our pain or in vain attempts to be happy or at least make our story safe again. I'm so grateful at Overflow Church. One of our core values is restoration. And our senior pastor, Len, and his wife, Robin, have given language to where we walk in restoration. And what they've seen is this, that there are four truths of restoration that are universally true on the planet today. The first one is this, that everybody has been wounded. That none of us in a fallen world get off unscathed. That all of us in our story, no matter how good you say you're doing today, that everyone has been wounded. That there are people that have come in your story and done things they should not have done. And there are people that should have been present in your story that didn't see Christ in you, the hope of glory. Everyone's been wounded. The second truth they share is that the wounds within us often cause unwanted emotions and unwanted behaviors, which lead to strongholds. That the things that we're going through, that too often what we're doing is we're attacking the fruit on the trees and we're never actually getting down to the root, saying that the unwanted emotions, the things that are coming up, and the unwanted behaviors, listen, there's a root from a wound that needs to be healed. And this is the part of the process I get excited about, truth number three, that God wants Everyone healed. First John 3, Jesus says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the enterprise of the enemy. And so number four, everyone needs someone to help them through the process of restoration. I want to tell you, God often invades our stories through other sons and other daughters. That's why our value of community is so important as a church. So you're going to hear me share this morning, it was over 20 years ago, that my spiritual father, Pastor Lynn, and my spiritual big brother, Pastor Chris, stepped into my story. And through time and through incarnation, they helped me discover a crack in my castles of hiding. 
for the light to break through. There's this verse in Romans chapter 10 that's a beautiful verse, but we often apply it far too narrowly. It says this, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anybody heard that verse before? And normally what we say is this, so now we're going to pray a prayer, close your eyes, because if you don't close your eyes, God can't hear you. You pray the prayer, you walk the aisle, and now you're saved. And you know what? That's great. That's wonderful. And that's not even a fraction of what that verse is trying to say. Because you see this word saved, it's sozo in the Greek. And the word sozo in the Greek means this, it means saved, healed, delivered, rescued, recovered, restored, preserved, cured, protected, brought back to life, brought back to health, and made whole. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to share my story this morning. I want to share five places in my story where I have run to hide. Five strong towers that I've sought, five idols that I've clung to to comfort me in my grief, to kill my pain, to try to work hard enough to climb out of the pit of my own insecurity. And most importantly, I want to share how Jesus keeps over and over and over saving me and making me whole. My hope in the next few minutes is this, that the masks that we cling to will fall, that our idols will die, and that we'll all step a little bit closer into the light. Now, if you're going to understand my story, I've actually got to go back before me. I've got to go and I've got to tell you about my dad. So I've got a picture here of my dad. Look at, it. Look at him. Isn't he a tall drink of sunshine? Look at that. Actually, he wasn't. My dad was five foot eight and not happy about it. He had a chip on his shoulder, and so he went much of his life with all of his older brothers going outside. And so he played football at a young age to try to prove to them that he was just as tough as the rest of them. When it comes to my dad's personality, everybody who knew him said he was a lot like me. And so if we can see this picture, there's me and my dad. It's one of my favorite pictures on planet Earth. People who know him, people who knew my dad said he was a lot like me, that he was gentle, that he was calming, that he was loyal. They told me that my dad was smart, that he saw things that other people just didn't, that my dad had a huge heart, that he was an encourager, and he wasn't going to come in and just take over a room, but he had this dry wit in the way he saw things. And the way he saw the world somehow was healing because he saw it with a new lens and a new perspective. They told me that my dad was a leader and that he would go to the ends of the earth for those he loved, that he longed for a son. In fact, when he was in Vietnam, there were too many people. His name was William Clarence Ammons. And that C, he was like, I cannot believe my mom chose Clarence. So I just want to say to you, whatever your, your name or middle name is, you didn't get Clarence, probably. So... William C. Ammons, he goes to Vietnam, and they said, what's the C stand for? Because we have too many Wills, too many Williams, too many Billies. We're going to call you by your middle name. And he's like, oh, no, you're not. And they said, what does it stand for? And he said, why don't you guess? And they threw a few out, and finally they said, Charles. He said, yep, that's it. <laughs> and so they said, from now on, your name is Chuck Ammons. And so Chuck Ammons was actually born in Vietnam, and he told my mom that if ever he had a son, he wanted to name him Chuck so my dad, before he left for Vietnam, he got engaged 
to my mom. So here's this next picture. There's my dad and my mom. Man, look at them. I got to tell you, my mom is still a fountain of youth. Um, when I would go on, on um, field trips when I was in elementary school, we would fool everybody by just saying it was my older sister that somehow got a pass to take me on the field trip, and everybody loved that. When I first became a youth pastor at 19 years old, it was a few weeks in that I decided to take my mom with me for the first time to this little country Baptist church where I was the part-time youth pastor. And I was so confused because as I sat with my mom listening to the pastor preach the message, I'm feeling eyes like daggers at us. And I'm like, why is everybody being so rude to my mama? And afterwards I realized they thought that I was cheating on my girlfriend and this was the girl that I brought to church with me. Which raises so many questions about that church for me in my mind. But I got to tell you, my mom is even more beautiful and youthful on the inside. My mom is compassionate and hospitable and hilarious. And so in my story, my parents got engaged. My dad went to Vietnam. And sadly, the innocent, wide-eyed dreamer in him never came back home. It was years later when I'd gotten tired of going to every family gathering and only hearing rose-colored lenses stories about how everything was perfect in my dad's life and how I was always wanted, that I sat with my dad's brother, my Uncle David, and I said, tell me something real. And I can remember he was shaken, and he said, you need to understand something about the challenge your dad faced. There was a time in Vietnam, he was commanded to go into a village and kill everything that moved. When they looked in it, they saw it was mostly women and children. And they went back and reported and said, this wasn't what you thought. And they said, you have your orders. It was after that moment my father couldn't ever forgive himself. And as Vietnam ended and he came home, there was no homecoming for heroes. We lost. It was our great shame. The message my father received was get over it and get back to work. There was no PTSD. There was no counseling. And yet sometimes in the midst of everyday life, my dad would be tormented by a vivid flashback. In an instant, he'd be back at Vietnam. And he would begin in the middle of conversation, violently banging his head against a wall. Nobody knew what was wrong. He started drinking to numb the pain. And he never stopped. My dad was never a violent drunk. He was just a really sad one. He would drink until he'd pass out. And then when he'd sober up enough to remember again and it would come back, the tormentors would come back, he'd drink again. And he never got help. It cost my dad his marriage. This man was convinced that God was angry with him. He feared somewhere there was a monster within him that was beyond grace. And there are so many days, I think, what I wouldn't give for a time machine just to go back and cling to that precious man and tell him how much my God adores him. What I wouldn't give to walk with him through every day of the journey until grace found its home in him and he found his way back home again. But sadly, that didn't happen. When I was six, my dad tragically died in a car accident. And that would come to shape so much of my story. The reason I told you that 
picture of me and my dad is one of my favorites that I own. It's because I don't have a single moving picture memory of my father. Before the age of six, I have nothing but faded photographs. And that fact that my father passed would come to shape so much of my story, but I'll give it to you briefly. Here it is. My mom remarried to a man that today I'm thankful to call dad. Overnight, six years old, I got two new sisters. I was the youngest of four and the only boy. Oh, boy. I got to tell y'all, the number of times I was in a dress and makeup as a child were both cruel and unusual. My sisters, they're the salt of the earth. I've got three sisters. One has since gone home to be with Jesus. But my sisters, man, they are the picture of resilience and strength and compassion. I want to tell you honestly, my sisters are heroes of mine. But goodness gracious, as teenagers, they were a handful my sisters were partiers, and, and I'm talking about the, 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 the looking to break the rules kind of partiers, not like you're mild. It's like the, I'm going to wait till 30 seconds after curfew to come back in just to show you who's really in charge kind of rebellion. It was the fist fight at school or the secret drinking parties at home where we threaten our little brother's life if he says a word kind of rebellion that would take place. And it was under this backdrop that young me made several Silent decisions. Decision number one, I won't drink and I won't party. For my sisters, I saw the folly it led to. For my dad, I saw just what it could cost. The second thing I decided was I won't do things to get in trouble. In fact, I decided pretty young, I'm going to be the model kid, and I'm going to be praised, and I'm going to be helpful, and I'm going to be successful. Most importantly, one, I didn't even connect in my emotions till recently. I made a silent decision that I wouldn't let myself feel for the passing of my dad. Now, my sister and my mom, my dad's mom, we would go to stay with her for summers, and they cried a lot. They'd get out the pictures, and they'd cry. Be like, it's Tuesday. What are we going to do? We're going to remember your dad, and we're just going to cry for hours. Sounds fun. Happy summer. <laughs> I got to tell you, something in me broke when my dad passed, and I just couldn't let myself go there. And so I started a long pattern of hiding when things got too hard. I don't think I shed a tear for my dad's death for nearly a decade. And when I did, it was only one time. I was 15 years old. I'd written a song about my dad's passing, and I made the decision to share it with his mom, my Mima. And halfway through, I broke down in tears. It completely freaked me out as if I were having an out-of-body experience, and I promised to never go there again. When God wrecked my life some years later, and now I cry at all kinds of things, I got to tell you, it's still kind of new. I began to create masks, images to project to the world around me, safe houses that I would let myself live in. And I could convince myself that I was good, and that I was strong, and that I was not a burden, and that I was a help, that I was wanted, that I was respected, that I was needed. And as I look back, it led me to five masks and five idols. Mask number one I picked up in my life was the mask of people, of image and reputation and fitting in. I looked for my worth in the crowd for as long as I can remember. Now, growing up in the late 
80s coming into middle school, uh, elementary school, middle school, late 80s, early 90s, I got to tell you, I decided that my way to be in with the people was to be with the clothing trends of the late 80s and early 90s. And so if it was in, I had to have it. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Z Cavaricis here. And the Z Cavaricis, y'all, they need to be tight rolled. You got to tight roll them that way. I looked like that kind of clown every single day. Not just that, I had to have the skids. I don't know, anybody remember skids? Skids was a, a shortly lived, it was, it was about four months longer than it should have been, um, fad where you would wear these overalls that were in all these crisscross kind of patterns and you always had to wear one up and one down. It didn't stop there as I was becoming a football fan. You had to have Zubas. These were the things that the NFL players wore. So I, I showed up every, you know, every week like a rainbow, you know, threw up all over you. And then I can still remember in fifth grade, I was so convinced. Now listen, this was before the Air Jordans, this was before any of this, but they had the Bo Jackson Nikes. These things were $120 a pop, and I gotta tell you, late 80s, early 90s, that's a lot of money to spend on a pair of shoes. And you know what, because I was the good kid that didn't party and get in fist fights at school, I had me a pair of Bo Jacksons. <laughs> I gotta tell you, as I went into middle school and then high school, this insatiable desire to do whatever it took to fit in with the in crowd. It didn't stop just my clothing. It went to my music choices. Whatever was popular around, I would convince myself I was the biggest fan, which is a problem, because in ninth grade, the biggest thing on earth was Metallica and Nirvana. And I gotta ask you, does this face right here shout world's biggest Metallica fan? <laughs> That's what I was trying to sell in ninth grade, y'all. Look at me. Ooh, I love Metallica <laughs> and all of the half a song that I can sing or scream with them to prove that I'm in. My desire to fit in with people, yes, please, Kenny, take that picture down. Thank you. <laughs> oh, see, I just want to say to all the teenagers, there's still hope. There's still hope. Whatever you go, you can, if you can see that, there's hope. Um, it went to my idea that was too much laughing, Janelle. Um, this also took my desire to fit in with people. It went into my opinions and my convictions about right and wrong. See, I had to fit in with the world, and so what I would find myself constantly doing instead of sharing my opinion, I would sit back and I would listen. I would never share my convictions publicly. And in fact, it happened so much that I would listen, and all of a sudden when I'd hear, I'd go, well, I guess they could be right. And then I would convince my emotions because I had to fit in because that was my mask, and that's where I was going to find my worth, and I became a chameleon. And it became so bad that I don't even think I knew what I believed anymore. There's this quote that Pastor Bill Johnson shares. He says this. He says, if you don't live by the praise of men, you won't die by their criticism. You know what I came to find, though? The opposite is also true. If you live by the praise of men, it will feel like you die over and over and over again by their criticism. I needed so much for people to like me, I began to lose me. That was mask number one, people. Mask number two was romantic love. In fifth grade, I made the decision that it was time to be a man. <laughs> and if I was to be a man, then I needed to be desired by a woman. Looking back during that time, the number one father figure in my life would have been my uncle, here was the problem. My uncle was six foot three, a bodybuilder, former football player for Clemson, and every time he showed up, had another beautiful woman on his arm. And in fifth grade, I decided, that's the benchmark. 
And so I tried to prepare myself for the gridiron, forgetting that my body looked like a flat iron, right? And it, it became a problem. So I told myself, I got to get buff, I got to be tough, and I got to find love. And it became a nearly decade-long obsession where I had to be in a relationship. This was the topic of every nightly phone call, of every note passed in class. Whose love was I going to win, or whose love was I lamenting that I just lost? And by the time I got in high school, this thing had burned out into a wildfire. Now, my wife, Jill, and I, we went to the same high school. And so, for laughs one day, we decided to look back on my freshman to senior year and counted no less than 16 dating relationships I was in in high school. And listen, y'all, it wasn't that big of a school. So, like, the number of people I dated was larger than many school clubs. Like, you know, you get the letterman jacket at the end of the year, like if you swam or played football. Like, I could have I lettered in dating relationships. It would have been a patch of a broken heart on my sleeve. That's what it would have been. Longest relationship that I had was two months. The shortest, 24 hours. Hello, ladies. <laughs> and with every single of those 16 breakups, there was a lie that was reinforced that either I was a jerk that hurts people or that the soul that I put out there again was just not enough again. And the way I tried to remedy that lie was by winning another girl's affection and then another girl's and then another and deeper I fell. The mask of approval, the mask of romantic love. The third mask I found myself wearing from a young age was the mask of success. For as far back as I can remember, I've been a high-achieving kid. I look back over my time in elementary and middle and high school and college and then grad school, and I've got lots of awards and lots of recognitions, but I need you to understand something. It's not because I was naturally the best. On the contrary, it was because I had to be the best, because I hung all of my worth on my awards. So this is how the pattern started to shape out in my young life. If I couldn't be the best or at least be in the running, where six months or a year from now I could be the best, I would quit. So in third grade, it was soccer. And in fourth grade, it was karate. That was a disaster. In fifth grade, it was football. And I started a pattern of quitting hard things and gravitating to places where I would be immediately recognized and grinding in that place to make a name for myself. So I got in middle school and it was singing and I found with singing that I was called to it somewhere and so I made it to all county and then all state and then in middle school, high school and college they even had, in each of these, they had these elite vocal groups that would go even in college. I got to go out in one of these groups and tour and you would think that would make me secure but no, instead every single time I picked up a microphone it's like my whole soul was on the line. I believed that I was not enough. I was striving. I was jealous became a drummer. In middle school, I went to all county and then to all state. In high school, we had an award-winning drum line and the cost got higher and I found that I wasn't willing to pay it and I couldn't hang with them. So what did I do? Start of 11th grade, I quit. And then I found acting and I had to be in all of the plays in all of the sketches. As soon as I found out there was a school play, I had to be the lead. I worked for it, I missed out on it my junior year, but my senior year, I got the lead and it wasn't enough. 
My senior year was when I started going to church. And after that, to Bible college. And this is what I found started happening. I began to spiritualize the idol of success as zeal for the Lord. And way too many people rewarded me for it. I became a resident advisor at my college. And then my college's worship leader. I began leading large camps in worship across Tampa. My senior year, I won the leadership award for our college. I became a youth pastor. When I'd start preaching, everybody would talk about what a good communicator I was and how bright my potential could be. But every single compliment brought another benchmark that I had to own up to. So I was never resting and always running. And for all of my awards, I was just as insecure as I had ever been. Mask number three. Mask number four in my life was the mask of entertainment. When I grew up, I grew up in a house where the TV was always on. TV was background noise. Anybody have a house like that coming? So the TV was on 24-7 all the time, it felt like. And you know what? I didn't mind that at all because I loved being drawn into the arts and into stories. And so I would spend hours watching TV. Listen, I was channel surfing before it was cool. We had that huge satellite dish in the back of the yard, the one when you change the channel, the whole thing moves. And man, I would just wait, chomping at the bit that 45 seconds to go from Galaxy G3 to SpaceNet S4. All right, anybody who's got an old school satellite knows what I'm talking about. In entertainment, I loved music. This was back in the day where you had to wait for hours to tape your favorite song off of the radio, and you would just hope that the DJ wouldn't cut in at the end of your song and ruin it all. Music became the tower I would run to when I was sad or alone or stressed, and because of my obsession with popularity and relationships, I became best friends, best friends with the band Chicago uh, in middle school. You're a hard habit to break. And that was every night. I'm going to go in, listen to Peter Cetera, cry myself to sleep. What a life. I found as I began expressing it that the arts were a gift in my life, but I made them a crutch where I would hide from the heartbreak of life. I would find myself that every time silence would want to speak, that I would crowd out with the arts what God was wanting to say or what perhaps he was wanting to heal. My masks, popularity, romantic love, success, entertainment, and there was one more. It's the mask of food. This might be surprising for many to hear because I've held a similar weight my entire adult life, but what many people don't know is that has only happened through continual, often exhausting effort. Around the clock to this day, I constantly watch what I eat five to six days a week. I'm running a 5K um, distance when I go. When I was little, I was a super picky eater. But because I was the model kid, I got special privileges. I didn't have to eat anything I didn't want to eat because you know what? I wasn't going out and getting drunk. So it was like, that's one you could just use. It's like, you know. I don't want to have liver for dinner. It's like, well, liver's what we have. It's like, guess who didn't get arrested this week? Like, <laughs> maybe a hamburger's not too much to ask. I love you, Mom. So what I found was this, that from a young age, I would lean to food not for health but for comfort. My Achilles heel, sweets, fried foods, Sweet and fried foods. 
As I became an adult, I realized I wasn't going to get away with it because I had that metabolism as a teenager that I could eat just garbage and not gain weight. And at 19, it all asked for it back with interest, that kind of thing where you gain the freshman 25. And so I found from that time every exercise or diet plan because, listen, what happened was I didn't stop looking to food for comfort. What I did was I became an expert in learning how to manipulate calories. And so every diet plan and every exercise plan you can imagine, oh, I've probably been there. If you want to check one out, like I would be one of your experts, okay? Six-week body makeover, beach body, insanity, body beast, gym memberships to the YMCA, 24 fitness, uh, biking, road biking, mountain biking, the Atkins diet, the keto, paleo, Weight Watchers. Listen, Suzanne Summers diet. (laughs) Not even kidding. Intermittent fasting, you name it, I've tried it. And because what I was trying to do was constantly hold on to my mask of comfort through food, but maintain my image, which once again, I was trained from a young age that I needed for popularity and for romance and for success. Some years ago, God showed me a problem in my life that I was looking to food, not to keep me healthy, but to be my friend. And like the other four, they were a substance I was trusting in to save something in my life that they would never be able to deliver. I was restless, and it was wearing me down. I want to take us back to the beginning for just a minute. See, all of us have been wounded. All of us have things that have happened in our life that have broken our hearts, and sometimes it breaks so deeply we don't know how to face it. Our wounds find themselves manifesting in unwanted emotions and unwanted behaviors that if we're not being honest, they become strongholds. God desires for every person to be healed, but we're going to need somebody to walk with us to get freedom. I want to tell you the idols in my life have fallen all at different stages. As I've chosen authenticity and getting real a little bit at a time, allowing the light in, I'm finding that the masks once, over and over and over again in my life have fallen. In just a few minutes, this is what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask for us boldly to identify and step out from behind the masks that we hide to make our stories safe. Even right now, thinking about it, you might be tempted to feel shame, even to run from it. And I want to say, if that's you, there is no shame on you. There's only ever shame off of you in Jesus' name. I'm going to have a call in just a minute to lay down the idols and the masks to hold up your true face as unhealed or unfinished as it is and allow God and his light to breathe on it. How did it happen in my life? The first idol to fall was the idol of romantic love. I was in college. I finally won the heart of the love of my life, Jill. She was the one that I talked about in more of those letters and more of those phone calls exponentially more than anybody else throughout high school. But there was a problem. I was still unhealed, and I was expecting Jill to come and be able to fill something that only Jesus would ever be able to fill. And though it was the longest relationship I'd ever had in my life, because I still felt empty, I got scared, and I wanted to run, and I once again was believing the lie that another girl would fix it. By God's providence, an old high school friend just happened to be in town and just happened to show up at my house unannounced, though I lived at the college dorm. He came by my house. I happened to be there. And it was the afternoon I was making my final breakup plans. I was figuring out exactly what I was going to say. 
So when he came in, my friend Corey, I told him expecting his full support. Imagine my disappointment when Corey looked at me and said these words. He said, dude, I love you, but if you're seriously telling me you're breaking up with Jill Bradley, you're an idiot. You love that girl. And then he paused for a minute and he said this. He said, don't mess up and throw away the second best decision you've ever made. The first one being my decision to give my life to Jesus Christ. Now, I got to tell you, some of you hearing that, you're shocked because you just found out that Jill's last name was Bradley. And you're like, that's where their son got his name? (laughs) It's terribly creative. But the second in those words from my friend, I got to tell you, I've never been more blessed to be called an idiot in my life. Because his words shook me. All at once, it was like Paul on the road to Damascus and scales falling off of my eyes. And I saw in an instant that Jill wasn't the problem, that I was carrying a mountain of brokenness. And I had led our relationship at this point to a place of dysfunction that she had every single right to leave. But she didn't. She took me by my hand on one side and my buddy Chris on the other side, and they walked me all the way to healing and wholeness. And I got to tell you, I, I am the most blessed former idiot on the planet <laughs> because I fall in love a little bit more with this girl every single day, and I mean it. It's incredible. The second idol to fall in my life was the idol of people. It was eight years ago that I left this place, and the same guy didn't come back, but it was in a very different way than it happened in my dad's story. I went to a conference in Naples, Florida. Something happened that changed my life. 25 minutes alone with God in a hotel room. I was met by a God that, though I was a hot mess, showed me once and for all that he adored me, and he invited me to trade my reputation for my identity, and I took the trade. And several hours away from home, y'all, I found my voice and I've never looked back. But can I tell you something? The power wasn't in the encounter in that hotel room. Some people hear this story and they're like, that's just what I need. I just need God to come touch me like this. But this is what you don't understand. On my knees, and on Pastor Lynn's knees, and Chris's knees, and Jill's knees, hours and hours and hours of prayer before the Lord, that was just the reaping of what had been sown for a long time. We've got to stop romanticizing these big altar calls where it's going to be the moment. It'll be the moment when it's time to be the moment. We've got to put more confidence in our time on our knees. In Naples, I got to reap that. And suddenly I I saw the world differently. Saw people differently. No longer did I need them to applaud me. In fact, I found I came home and I can't help but applaud them. All the time. Because when you're secure, you can finally see the glory in others because you're not trying to secure it for yourself anymore. The third idol to fall in my life was the idol of success. And this one also began in Naples. See, it was there that I was able to see and celebrate the calling that God had in me, but it was there that he planted a new set of eyes that I saw the calling and the gifting in others. But this is what I want to tell you. I went through about an eight-month period when I came home from Naples where everything I touched turned to gold. It was awesome. I could just walk in a room and I'd be like, Jesus, and people would be like, it was amazing. 
I was a youth pastor, and I was leading our college ministry, and I can remember it had been eight months. And all of a sudden, feels like it was the same week, I walked into these rooms ready to say Jesus, and now suddenly there wasn't fruit there. Not only was there not fruit there, there was resentment every time I opened up my mouth. The youth group, they felt disgruntled toward me. Something felt out of alignment. They were tired of hearing me. They were frustrated. They were waiting in counseling lines to be with me afterwards, but nobody was happy. So I went to the safe place of the college group, and I found the same week they were in the same place too. And I went through a period of time for a number of months where it felt like everything I touched didn't work at all. And I didn't know where I fit in the kingdom. I had this burning desire to make Jesus known. I was at the place where my saying in those days were, I'll go sell shoes in China. I don't care. I just want Jesus to be known. But I didn't know where I needed to go. I didn't have any view of being a, a, a lead pastor of a church. I didn't see a path forward. And it got really, really, really uncomfortable. During that time, to add to it, I became an author joined a vocal group, Valley's Inn, where we started recording things. And I found myself around social media, where now in those, new two, those two new places, they were old patterns that wanted to creep in of success and go, okay, you got to do this. There's a benchmark you got to live up to. i got to tell you, by the grace of God, because of the regular community I share my life with, I want to tell you exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about my co-pastors. The people I get the honor of walking alongside as brothers and sisters that know me, that have continually reminded me that I'm, that I'm not any fruit that I can pull out, that I'm a dearly beloved son of God and I can stand on my own, that I'm telling you, I watched this drive for success fall away. It's the craziest thing. I'm not restless anymore. I'm content. I'm so able to radiate pursuing faithfulness because I don't need to be right and I don't need to be seen and I don't need to be recognized and I don't need to have a platform. It's gone. And I got to tell you, I can lift my head and I can breathe in this place. I'm so glad that mask and that idol of success has been shattered. Now those last two, entertainment and food, I want to be as transparent as I can be with you as your pastor today. These are two places where I've seen amazing breakthrough, and they are two, moment by moment and hour by hour, I'm still working out my salvation with fear and trembling as my God is working in me. I haven't arrived anywhere. Over these last years, I've been discovering the Holy Spirit's fruit of self-control and godly discipline, and I want to tell you, godly discipline is so much different than striving. I'm seeing victory. I can't wait for, what, three months and six months and nine months from now are going to look like, but I'm fulfilled today. Here's the reason I share all of this this morning. When it's all said and done, what I want to say of my story, it's this, that every place I've called on the name of the Lord, he saved me. He's rescued. He's restored. He's healed. He's called me out of hiding. He's made me whole. And so I want to beg you over these next few minutes. I'm going to beg you to take down every mask, to cease your construction of safe houses. 
I'm going to beg you to say farewell to faulty comforters and to lift your head and begin to see the light coming in every crack of every castle you've been hiding in, for shame to come off of you, for you to step out into the sun and see that in the midst of all of your mess and all of your unfinished, that your God adores you and there's a community around you ready to walk with you in every page of the story he's writing in you. But will you let every mask fall? I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And even now, as you stand, I'm just going to ask if you would close your eyes before the Lord and lay your hand on your heart. The question I feel led to ask you this morning is the same question God asked Adam and Eve. It's the most ancient question. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you hiding? Where are you afraid? Where are you broken? Where are you overcompensating? Where are you trying to drown out the silence the emptiness, the pain, the resentment, the people who should have been in your story and weren't there. For the ones who are present in your story and brought unspeakable pain. I don't know your wounds, but I know we all have them. And I know our God alone is big enough to take them all. hand on your heart, I want to ask this question. What masks are you wearing? Where is it you're hiding from the world, afraid to be seen for who you really are? Where is it you run to shield yourself from pain or stress? What is it you turn to to give you comfort and to make your story safe again? My Bible tells me that the name of Jesus is above every other name. And what I want to tell you is the name of whatever that mask is. The most beautiful thing you could do this morning is take it off and lay it down at his feet. See, there were moments where I said, Jesus, you're going to be greater than the mask of popularity and appearance and reputation. Jesus, you're going to be greater than the mask of romance. Jesus, you're going to be greater than the name of success in my life. Jesus, you're going to be greater than the name of entertainment. Jesus, you're going to be greater than the comfort of food. What do you find yourself restlessly chasing to attain or to escape? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, healed, delivered, rescued, recovered, restored, preserved, cured, protected, brought back to life, 
brought back to health and made whole. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be brought back home. Where's it time to come home? This is what I'm going to ask in this moment. I want to keep this a sacred moment between you and your king. But right now, if there's something you're hiding behind, I'm just going to ask you to take your hand from your heart up to your face. And in your own words before the Lord, that you would say, this is the mask I've been hiding behind. And Jesus, I don't want it anymore. This is the mask I've been hiding behind. And Jesus, I lay it down. Would you just take a second and tell him what's actually in your heart? Jesus, this is the mask I've been hiding behind. I don't have the answers. I need you to save me. asking right now in Jesus name revelation come from heaven comfort and healing come from heaven realignment come from heaven scales fall from eyes come down now from heaven father may chains be broken may lies be silenced May wounds be healed. May all bad agreements get buried. I want you to imagine you taking that mask and just dropping it off your face to the ground. Somebody hear me this morning. I don't know your moment, but that's a prophetic act of exactly what God is doing in your story. For some, it's going to be this moment in this service because what's been prayed and what's been sowed, this is the moment. Praise God. That's awesome. But for others, you got revelation today and somebody hear me or you're going to find yourself at the next altar call as an orphan wondering why God didn't move. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Everyone's been wounded and everyone needs someone to walk them toward healing and restoration. You can't do this apart from community, apart from transparency. So this is what I'm going to ask this morning. Wherever you've laid a mask down, who are the people that you're walking with that are holding up your arms to walk you to freedom. If this morning you're saying, you know what? Listen, I don't have real community like that. That's why we hold a value of community at Overflow Church. That's why we make such a big deal of our missional communities. Our desire is every member of Overflow Church would belong to a thriving missional community of people around them that would hold up their arms and that together we lead each other to greater and greater restoration. I'm asking who are your people? If you say, I don't know who they are this morning, this is what I'm going to ask. Pastor Chris would be the person I want you to see this morning and say, I need you to help me find that kind of community. We're going to meet you there. Father, may every mask fall. May we see our true selves and know once and for all that you've always delighted in us. Come and write the fullness of the story you desire for us.